Welcome to Ripstop on the Record, the podcast for makers, by makers, where we talk about all things MYOG. Brought to you by Ripstop by the Roll. I think it's good, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that was a good take. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of Ripstop on the Record. Today we have Claire joining us from For Everywhere. Claire is a talented seamstress, and she's going to talk to us today about her experiences, her knowledge, and tricks that she's learned repairing clothing and other items from her time working at Filson and even Patagonia's Warnware program. Claire's truly a wealth of knowledge and has years of experience saving items from the landfill. She also has a passion for repairing items over replacing them. But before that, we have some updates. You might have noticed that we have new music. Our new intro music was created by Dom, who works in our outdoor ink department to ensure that your orders are always printed correctly. Dom is also a talented creator, and he's helped us in making this awesome new intro. Let us know how you like it, and we hope that it reflects who we are a little bit better, the DIY and MYOG spirit. And thank you, Dom, for helping us out and putting together this awesome intro, and we hope that everyone enjoys it. Lastly, we have a new product. We have recently released our new RBTR fabric sample binder. The sample binder is going to be your BFF when it comes to keeping all of your custom samples in one secure and organized place. We've also given our custom samples a facelift or a makeover, if you will. Jameson has been working for months, maybe close to years on <laughs> reinvigorating the life of our custom samples and they look awesome. So if you're not familiar with our custom samples or you want to upgrade the samples that you have, we'll link them in the bio. They all include a QR code to make it super easy to scan and get your fabric details right at your fingertips. But now let's get to the episode. Hey, Claire, thanks so much for joining us on today's episode. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, so we have uh, a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Uh, there, there's quite a lot to get into, but pretty much everybody that comes on the podcast has, um, they have a background in making to some experience or to some extent. That's kind of why they're here. And I guess I want to jump right into um, what you're like as a maker. What did you, where did you start? Was it in like home ec? Did your, uh, you know, uh, you know, a parent teach you, what was your, what was like, what was it like for you learning how to sew? Yeah, man, I started, I started really when I was in maybe junior high, I, I wanted to start just like expressing myself through my clothing. My parents would take me like back to school shopping once a year, but I didn't really get to get anything else the rest of the year. So I'd see stuff and <clears throat> that I wanted to wear and I would try to recreate it when I came home and I was like just using scissors and glue and staples and stuff. It was really rogue in the beginning. My mom taught me how to hand sew. 
Um, but yeah, I was just kind of doing whatever I could to like make the idea come to life. Um, and then my parents saw how much I was, how invested I was, and they got me a sewing machine for my junior high graduation but no instructions on how to use it. So <laughs> I think I broke it the first time I tried to use it. Yeah, then I took a class at a local technical college just to learn, you know, you learn how to use the machine and make a pillowcase or something like that. So I understood how to put in the bobbin correctly and just kind of the basics of operating the machine and threading it. So that, that gave me enough of a basis to then start um, just kind of intuitively sewing at home and I was really interested in reconstructing vintage clothes so um, I'd go to the thrift store and buy stuff and I would just like hack it I knew how to make it look good from the outside but people weren't allowed to look at the inside of it so um yeah so I was pretty self-taught and just like you know was just kind of following my intuition with a lot of it and then but I started taking more classes at um like at a community college in Seattle and then a technical college down in Tacoma, Washington, and um, where some elders uh, corrected a lot of my self-taught techniques and stuff. I'm like, I know how to kind of put in a zipper, but they were like, this is how you do it the right way. And um, so, but I, I mean, I've, I've never stopped learning. Like, I, so I guess I started when I was 15, I'm 34, or actually probably earlier than 15, but that's what's in my head. And I'm 34 now. So it's been almost 20 years of just like, curiosity and following that curiosity like I've just taken so many one-off classes and workshops anything that's like I knew I wanted to learn really strong clothing construction skills like I wanted to be able to make a gorgeous like you know any garment from scratch with like really fine finishings and stuff and I wanted to be able to make my own patterns and everything so clothing construction is definitely what um, kind of motivated the beginning of my what I wanted to learn, but I always knew that I wanted to make things from secondhand materials. So I guess I was interested in upcycling or making new clothes, but I wanted it to be a super high quality. So there's a very different, um, like whole set of skills. I think that's required with making clothes. Uh, like I'm a, I'm an experienced maker. It sounds weird to say that cause I've not been sewing for all that long, but I'm an experienced maker in some respects where like I've made, I don't know, like 10 to 15 different backpacks and I made a tent and I've like made things that are like somewhat impressive to look at. But when I think about the skills required and the stitches requ required, I'm like, I would rather make 10 backpacks than make like one, uh, like uh, make one piece of apparel that's supposed to even look good. <laughs> that sounds so overwhelming to me. Um, I guess I want to like touch on that a little bit. What, what are some of those differences? Like what are the things that you have to know to be able to make apparel that are different than just running straight stitches through laminate fabrics? Like yeah. that <laughs> That's so funny because I think so many garment sewers would be like totally intimidated to make a tent or something like that. But I think there's so much crossover, you know, not even just between like gear and garments, but even between like, you know, architects and construction and stuff. It's really just like it's pattern making and measurements and, you know, following a set of measurements yeah. and stuff like that. Um, gosh, you know, the body, like learning to take measurements for the body, it doesn't seem that different to me from like, I don't know if, or if, if you're trained in pattern making or just sewing from existing patterns. Okay. Yeah. I pretty just make my own like i'm i'm very rogue uh my friends get mad at me for that there's like you know you know you can like follow a pattern and make that way easier 
Yeah, yeah, they say that. I don't know. <laughs> it, it is a beautiful thing when you like drafting, you know, taking the measurements, like say of the body, drafting a flat pattern. That's what I'm trained in. And then cutting that out of fabric and sewing it up and having it fit perfectly. It's like, I think that process of going from a 3D body to a 2D pattern and then back into a 3D form, mm, it like yeah. never loses its, um, like its awe to me. Um, but yeah, I think I do see a lot of similarities to them, but I, I think people get intimidated by the curves and stuff like that. Like adding, there's like, you yeah. know, on a darts on a woman's bodice and stuff like that. But um it helps if you do learn some of those things the proper way, like learning some of those rules so you know how to break them. But I think they probably like lend themselves to to other techniques that you could use in garment design too. Like I see people using darts and stuff and like shaped bags and stuff that have, or like a, like a rain cover for a bag that would require some darts and stuff on there. So mm -hmm. I think they're similar techniques. I think that's a good observation that like being uh, like a mostly self-taught sewer that I don't know the fundamentals that well. I think that's probably what scares me the most about the apparel side. And it may be one thing I'm like starting to pick up on with a lot of apparel stuff is that you have to have like a set of skills that's really honed in and like be, able, be willing to learn like the right way to do yeah. it <laughs> and not just kind of mess around with it. That's that's a good, yeah, it's kind of encouraging to, to think about that. Uh, you mentioned in your... Um, kind of in your making experience, how you took a lot of like classes to like hone your skills and whatnot. What are some examples of those? I mean, kind of asking personally to know like which classes I need to take now, but for the listener as well, like what were some of those ways and like skills and classes that you took to, to grow your skills? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think the most impactful class probably was a pattern making workshop with a person named Kenneth King. He's a professor at FIT in New York and he teaches lots of like He's done a lot of things for like Threads Magazine, which is like a garment uh, or like home sewing world. Um, but he he travels and does a lot of workshops and he teaches this French couture pattern making technique called the moulage. And it's like a custom, like how to make like a body double custom fit, uh, you know, wow. pattern for yourself. So I took like one class to learn how to draft the bodice and one to learn how to draft like pants and skirts and that was just like a weekend workshop like you know we learned went through it maybe it was two days or something like that but I learned you know more in those two days than I have and it, it was so worth whatever investment yeah. it was <laughs> and um and I still have those patterns and surprisingly they still kind of fit me like even you know if your weight fluctuates a little bit it's cool because you have this like sausage and a casing body double for yourself but then you also learn about what's called wearing ease like so it's the um you know for like a t-shirt it doesn't have much it's not much the pattern isn't much bigger than your um you know your sausage in a casing pattern <laughs> but like then a, a shirt needs to be a little bit just a little bit larger and then a jacket needs to be just a little bit larger yeah, but I, I think the techniques I learned in that one class are probably the single most impactful thing I've ever done. Because the sewing stuff, like, I did take some classes on clothing construction where I learned how to sew different seams and just practice, like, the, you know, how to set in a sleeve in a shoulder seam and how to, it's called easing it in, where, like, the sleeve pattern is actually larger than this armhole. So you have to, um, you have to ease it, which is, like, kind of you know, gather the fabric a little bit, but you don't want it to look gathered. It's like this technique of just sort of 
right. you know, finessing it in to fit. So it, so it just drapes over your shoulder in this really nice way. And yeah, that sounds, it's like something you don't think about every day when you get dressed, you know, and now I'm like going to go down a long rabbit hole tonight <laughs> thinking about how the sleeves on my <laughs> clothes fit, but, um, <laughs> You mentioned taking taking these classes. Did you go to school or college for sewing, or how did that come about? Yes and no. I I went to I I do have a bachelor's degree from a school called the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, and um, yeah, my parents really encouraged me to like get a bachelor's degree, and I was very like rebellious and I was like I already know what I want to do and nobody teach it like I I had researched every from the time I was 15 or 16 probably I think I had researched I'm not joking every apparel design program in the world like the major ones at least like I was I've always known what I want to do and um and I really knew that like sustainability and sort of re-learning how to make things in a different way was at the core of that and um, I had a little bit of money for school from a commercial I did as a kid. So I also had this interesting thing kind of guiding me where it was like, it would get me an entire degree at a, in, like an in-state school or like one year at a um, art school or something. So I w- really wanted to go to an art school, like a high, you know, high level fashion design program, but none of them were really teaching sustainability at the time. And like, this was, you know, more than 15 15 years ago or so and sustainability wasn't like a part of the language at the time and I was like I don't want to go into debt learning how to make things the same way that we've like ended up in this problem like we need to do a different (laughs) way and so that's why I the school I went to you design your own majors and so I kind of like did what I needed to do to I took like a fiber arts program there where I learned about like weaving and natural dyeing and felting and basketry and stuff like that and from a Native American woman that was incredible. And like, so I took, yeah, I took a different route and just took lots of, and I had like um, set up a lot of independent study things. Cause again, I knew exactly what I wanted to study, but there weren't classes for it. So, you know, so I'd say half of what I was studying was, you know, just clothing construction techniques from anyone that I could apprentice with or find a mentorship with. Um, and then the other half of it was like studying business and design and, you know, some other, other skills. That's really fascinating. Um, one thing that you touched on that's really hitting with me is like 15 years ago, talking about that sustainability wasn't as much of a priority in, in apparel design schools or really just in fashion in general. And like thinking back 15 years ago, um, I'm, around the same age as you Claire but like grew up in the world of like forever 21 like all this really fast fashion and it's like we went from where you know like people like my mom my grandma was making them like homemade outfits that they went to school in and my mom like shows me the pictures and I was like this your grandma made this skirt and things like that to like the world of malls and outlets and fast fashion and um I think that will probably lead into my next question, which is how did you like turn the corner to go from working in apparel to strictly working on repairs and repairing apparel and gear? Yeah, that's a good question. 
I think, I think when I was living in, after college, I moved to New York to work for a designer that I was really inspired by. And I was buying vintage clothing and just from my own wear and tear on my clothing. Like I biked everywhere in New York city and, um, and really loved vintage clothes. And I think they're just already more compromised. And so I think I just, and I had always like been into denim and, you know, jeans and bought kind of nice jeans even in high school. And so I knew just trying to keep my jeans alive, I think was the big one, you know, you always like wear holes in the crotch. And so I think, you know, I had taken them because I didn't think I had the skills to repair them at the time, like in high school, but I remember taking them to a dry cleaner and having them uh, do some repairs on the crotch. It's like they were doing darning, but like really bad over the seams and just like, <laughs> and like, it was just like really, and it got so, and then I probably tried to mimic what they were doing, but they got so dense over time that they literally like weren't even comfortable to wear anymore. So I think I just, I think I only had them actually, you know, dry cleaner tailor do it once and from there I probably just like kind of intuitively followed the basic idea but was just kind of repairing my own clothes and I think it was so in line with you know knowing that like I always knew that I wanted to make new clothes out of old clothes so I was interested in reconstruction and upcycling and all those things and repair is just another facet of it but I, I think the job that I got at the um my first like real job in my career was the um working in the filson restoration department and that was in so i moved back to seattle for that job and that was we were repairing bags and it was just uh, i actually met my partner working in that department we're still together um so that was eight years ago and so we were taking um it was so it was such an incredible job on so many levels but you know filson was still manufacturing the majority of their stuff in Seattle at the two factories there. Um, so we were sewing in the factory with the factory sewers and learning everything about, they were doing all of their leather production there. So I got to learn about all the leather machinery and processes, um, you know, cutting fabric on the, you know, huge cutting tables and every different type of sewing machine for garment and bag construction. So that's really where I learned I learned darning in a more real way, like repairing the fabric and um, replacing the leather and stuff. We, our, our department had like literally no budget at the, you know, in the first couple of years of it, they were just like, you got to get scrappy. Like we were, we both Evan and I, and a, a lot of people used to dumpster dive in Filson's, um, Filson's dumpsters because they were legendary and they, cause they do production, they throw away tons of like cuttings off roll stuff. And so like, it's a very le- legendary dumpster to to dive, but we were laughing that like even when we worked there, we were still dumpster diving <laughs> to get like materials <laughs> that we needed. Because I mean, part of the ethos too is that we're using scraps and whatnot. But but it really meant that like if we were if we had to, we had to take leather pieces off a lot to deconstruct the bag, you know, and repair the fabric and then stitch it back together. But a lot of times we weren't replacing the old leather pieces, so we had to go through the stitch holes of like the old needle holes of the leather and so like oh my god it was so hard (laughs) because it it changes too it's like you find the right stitch length but then it might have stretched in one area so the stitch length between in some areas it would like get shorter and then longer again so you really have to go like stitch by stitch by stitch so that's like i think just all the techniques that i learned um 
that was like a huge acceleration for my skill set. Um, and I think I just fell in love with her pair so much in that process because it was like we got to work on one bag a day and it was just an incredibly fulfilling way to spend my time and like go to work, choose a bag that I, um, you know, was inspired to work on, take it, take a photo of it, take it completely apart, stitch it back together and put it out for sale. And sometimes it sold in the same day. And I would just like with all the, you know, stuff going on in the world and you're like, oh, what can I do? It was like kind of cool to just be like, well, I saved one thing from the landfill today and that's kind of all that I can do. <laughs> like I slept well at night, but yeah. I've often thought about what it would be like to work at a place like Filson or, or other places. Um, I was at Sitka, a Sitka shop a couple of weeks ago and they have like a huge repair center, like in their shop in Bozeman. Um, and it just got me thinking about what it would be like to work with a company and, and, and in that way. And I've heard some people talk about it being like, you know, you're saying the same or sewing the same thing every time. Um, I've heard people kind of like, like your experience being like, no, it was like really life-giving and like, it felt like meaningful, but also it was really cool. I, I don't really, I wish I had a better question than just be like, what was it like? But I, I don't even know what to ask. Like, what was it like to work at a place where you did something like that? Like what were some of the, uh, the techniques that you were learning? What was the, what was the day-to-day like, I guess? It's hard to imagine as like a, an office, like a computer employee getting to do something with my hands all day. And like, I love the days, like when we're like, we're off every other Friday and sometimes I'll come in here and like just sew for like four or five hours. And it's super fun. Like turn music on and just like zone out. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's been, it's been half the day and I've just been sewing here. Is it kind of like that? Or is that like too dreamy? Like what's it like sewing yeah. all day, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Cause the, the first, I, and you want to hear about Filson specifically. Yeah, or what? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, I guess we you have a lot of experience sewing in that yeah. way. But yeah, I don't know. Fill, fill that in as you wish. Yeah, I, I mean that that was just a super unique job and a super unique time in the company. But the first year that um, we were there, or I was there, uh, we were we were totally had a private workshop and we were like sewing in the factory. So we had a space just off the factory floor where we did all of our deconstruction and like prep stuff and kept all of our raw materials. Um, and then we had, but then the second year that I was there, they had built us a, uh, they had opened a flagship store and they had built us a workshop inside of the flagship store. So we were like working on display, open air space. So people were like asking us questions all the time. And, you know, we had to li- listen to the same repetitive music in the retail store. So like that was a totally different experience <laughs> from like working in the factory. I think I, I am very nostalgic for the working in the factory time because uh, we just had so many friends in the factory and it was just like incredible. Like there were so many people around us all the time. And I think we, we got to like, we would go in, you know, you were asking what a typical day was like, and, you know, we would kind of choose what bag, like, like I described briefly, like that was kind of a normal day was like, choose what bag, complete one bag in a day but there were also days where we're like Mm. we really need to spend time sorting or like we're out of raw materials to use like we have to go harvest them so we gotta go dumpster dive we gotta go see like i remember there was a tablecloth they would use um rolls of fabric as a tablecloth uh, like the classic filson twill they would use it as a tablecloth um for the painting leather paint edge painting stations and so they had the filson bags have this really um iconic body tab that's called and it's like this kind of it's like uh, English point I think is like the shape on the sides but so the 
the pattern, the tablecloth would have like all of these kind of, it almost looked like stamps of these body tabs because they'd paint the edges and then they'd set it down and move on to the next one. So they had all of these like cool paint splatters and like markings and stuff on them. So we'd be like, they like, we're like, we need fabric to make this, you know, they want us to make a run, you know, 12 pouches right now. And we, we don't have any fabric. So we'd like go downstairs to the sewers or to the leather area and be like, can we switch out your tablecloth right now? Like we, we want that fabric because it looks cool. <laughs> and then my favorite part is that like, but it would be like brand new fabric essentially that had been painted, but we're like everything. If we did want to use something for patch, if we did get fabric from production um, that was new, it didn't quite look right for, to mix with the old dirty bags. So there was a rooftop there. <laughs> we would climb the escape ladder with like end rolls of fabric, like over our shoulder. <laughs> and we would lay them out on the roof and we would like sun fade them for like, you know, which in Seattle takes a little bit longer than <laughs> Los Angeles. <laughs> but it's like, we were like, this is our job? <laughs> like what? It was so wild. Like some of the extents that we would go just to um, get the materials that we needed, just kind of scavenging from the company itself. And, um, and yeah, and some days, the other thing was like, there were a core number of styles that we would, um, that we would repair, but there were other bags that they made that didn't fit within that. So sometimes we would harvest those bags. We would be like, this is just this gigantic body bag sized, like duffel bag. Like we could, there's so much hardware, leather and, you know, fabric on this that would be really valuable to use for something else. So some days we'd be like, today is just going to be a processing day. And we would just spend all day deconstructing bags that were styles that we weren't going to restore. And, you know, just to harvest parts and stuff. Yeah, it was very dynamic. And then we'd be like meeting with the CEO the next day to like, talk about what the directions were. It was like, we, we talked to, we worked with everybody in the company from the CEO to like, probably the lowest paid factory worker and they were just like all friends and collaborators on it so it was a very unique job thanks for sharing those stories um it's really insightful to hear and also just you yeah, had the the image of you guys climbing up that i have <laughs> images escape ladder with fabric rolls <laughs> we might need to see those that that really got me um so that kind of goes into my next question. How did we've kind of gotten more color on your background in making and your journey and that begun of recycling and upcycling gear. So how did for everywhere start? Yeah. Um, I started for everywhere kind of a, a little over a year ago. So I had taken, I'd been working for larger companies over the last eight years or so. And I had a job not work out that I moved down to Los Angeles for. And I took some space to just like heal and recover from that. And really like, so, and I had an unemployment from my last job at Nike. So that was like such a huge blessing to just really have time to reflect on what I wanted to contribute and what I didn't feel was being represented in the, you know, in the industry. I'm like, so many people are talking about circularity and starting resale programs and stuff like that. But the huge thing I see is like, so many people are like, so where can I take my thing to be repaired? Or like, or they have some really special item that they don't trust taking to a tailor. And I've like 
whenever people ask me those questions, I'm like, I don't know, like, because I'm usually I've had other jobs and I haven't had time to like help them. And so, yeah, I just I knew I know how many people have asked me for to repair really special items over the years. So I was like, let's give this a shot and see how this works through the mail. It felt like a good idea to do everything through the mail because we we're still in a pandemic and um, it felt very pandemic proof. And um, though I love the idea of having a storefront or something where I can interact with the public on the day to day, I also am still young and unsure of where I'm going to live long term. Like I had just moved to Los Angeles and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to stay here. Like I want this business to be something that I can take with me or do from anywhere. So, yeah, so it's a pretty simple concept or has been over the last year of just like I have an Instagram and a form people fill out and, you know, they send in their super sentimental pieces and I fix them and I mail them back. <laughs> you're on, on your Instagram bio. There's a quote that I love and I think it'll paint a really good picture of everybody else where it says it's like therapy. <laughs> and, and I, I love that. It's clever. It's funny. I like how it's, um, like making light of a situation, but like not taking yourself too seriously, but also it's again, it, it's perfect. I understand it even better yeah. now having read that. <laughs> um, but I love that. Uh, hey, so you mentioned another company that you worked with, and I want you to like fully name drop now because I think it uh, sheds a lot of light on your skills and how talented you are. What are some of the companies that you have worked with, and then what did you do for them? Yeah, so Filson was the first one, and then from there, um, we kind of got poached by, we were thinking about leaving, but um, Patagonia's Warnware program had just started. And my partner, Evan, and I were kind of dreaming before that program started um, of traveling around and repairing things out of like a van or something. And then that launched and we were like, what? And then we met the person running that program and she invited us to come work for them. So we've been working for Patagonia's Warnware program on and off over the last six years, um, just sort of on a part-time like events um, basis and it's such an amazing program and like it's so simple like we get to travel around together with our friends and like pop up and do free clothing repairs on any brand of stuff and it's like I joke that it's like getting paid to do community service work so um, so yeah Patagonia <laughs> has been a through line and then I took a little break because I needed more regular work um, and I, I had a really cool opportunity to work at Nike in this um, experimental makerspace they have there for designers. It's more early stage, like concepting, prototyping stuff than like late stage sample making. Um, yeah, it's called the Blue Ribbon Studio and I was a sewing specialist there for a couple years until, until the pandemic. And it was in the pandemic that I was like, I don't really know what's gonna happen here. And I took a, uh, so I left Nike and took a job in LA um, the one that I said didn't work out and, and then I started for everywhere. So I think that, oh, and then I guess for a little bit, maybe right before I started my business, I was working for a, um, like a streetwear brand here called market. And they had a, they started this new department. That's also like an atelier maker space inside of their headquarters. Um, it's called the random workshop. And so we were, we helped build out that space, design this makerspace, get the machines that they needed and train up some of the newer sewers on like how to kind of elevate the 
sewing level and pattern making standards and stuff like that. But a lot of like upcycling was happening and kind of like reworking old merchandise they had made and stuff. It was super fun. I hope this doesn't sound creepy, but I wish I could be a fly on the wall in most of your professional life because those sound so fascinating. <laughs> All of them. Like the Worn Wear program is so rad. It's super cool. I like follow them on Instagram and like see the bus tour and everything like that from the Filson days to like the Blue Room Studios. It all sounds way too cool. You're awesome already. <laughs> Thank you. I feel so lucky to have found all of these, like each of these departments and these bigger brands are so... Um, they're so weird and like even the people that work there don't even understand them or like quite how to it's been felt it's felt like small businesses or rogue little things inside of these more established brands Um, but yeah having this weird skill set like I keep I think that's the thing that I come down to that like I because I took this um, I was really following my intuition and what I wanted to study and I knew that there wasn't a clear path for it I, when it came to, you know, apply for this Filson job, it was like, I knew that they were going to have a hard time finding someone else that was more qualified than me for that job. I was like writing my resume and I was like, sure, there's other people. I was always a little bit self-conscious that I didn't have like a, you know, fashion design program under my belt or like a title of a fancy school to like mm-hmm. kind of carry me. Sure. Um, but I was like, you know what, like the... In, like all of these individual classes and stuff that I have, it makes me, I just doubt that there's anybody else that really has a comparable skill set. So I've always been like the most, I haven't really had any competition in a lot of jobs that I've applied for. It's just been like, I guess it's me. Yeah. <laughs> a little unicorn over here. <laughs> so. <laughs> I was just about to like pivot us to a different part of the episode, but I'm down a different tangent and I have to ask you now, what is like, when you apply for one of these jobs, do they make you like, do you, do they turn on a portfolio? Do you have to like, sew something for them on the spot or is it kind of, or is it like, yeah, like how do you, I mean, it's such a specific skill set, I guess, you know, it's like if you're doing marketing, like my job, like, I don't know, people can kind of figure it out, whatever, but you're so honed in, like they have to know that you are super talented on the sewing machine. How do you prove that? Yeah, I, I think at Filson, I actually didn't, I might've, there might've been a portfolio. I think it was just my resume at first though, or maybe like, maybe there was like a working interview or something. I don't really remember. Patagonia, they, um, Evan and I both uh, interviewed for that or whatever. Like they, they knew they wanted to hire us, but they did have to, we weren't experienced sewing lightweight, um, you know, technical fabrics. Like we were sewing, like, we're like, we use a pocket knife as a seam ripper. (laughs) Like, like, I don't think we can do that. It's like basically like sewing silk. So they, they sent us a box of broken jackets and no instructions. And they were just like, fix them and send them back and we were fix so it. nervous oh because we had never sewn anything like this before and like there's just so many stitches the stitch length is so short and the fabric so delicate and um but we did it and we like included all these little notes that were like you know little disclaimers like i did it this way but if i would have had this different thing maybe i would have done it a different way <laughs> like you know like trying to explain our thought process in it and um, and it was funny because we actually found out later that the box never got opened or like we found the box somewhere. <laughs> and oh we were like, well, <laughs> I guess we still got the job. <laughs> Nike, I didn't have, I didn't have to do a, um, 
I don't think there was like a sewing test or anything like that. I think yeah. at a certain point, there's just like an understanding among people. Although maybe I do remember that yeah. I haven't like knits are what I have the least experience with, like sergers and stuff. I was like, Ooh. like I'm, it's going to be my responsibility to be the person who like teaches people how to use the serger and like rethread it and stuff. And I was that in the cover stitch mas- machine. So I knew I needed to like, I knew that I could do it, but I just had to like spend a little extra time there. Um, but yeah, I think at a certain point, people are also just like impressed by brands or a resume sort of like that speaks for yeah. itself. So yeah. I guess my Instagram now is kind of my, my portfolio. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I won't take us down uh, another tangent. I'm going to actually pivot back on the outline here. Um, so one thing I want to give the listeners an idea about is how to repair gear in the basics. Obviously we can't, you know, <laughs> it's only so much you can do on a podcast, but I wanted to ask you, are there, are there principles of repairing gear? Like, are there just a kind of sub, you know, a set of things that you look for? Um, a lot of people that we're talking to are probably gonna be repairing like bags and packs, tents, shelters, hammocks, and then certainly like your normal outerwear, rain jacket, things like that. But if you were to try and distill <laughs> years of knowledge down to like some some principles of repairing, what, what would they be maybe? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, each project is so unique, but I do really believe like repair is a very intuition led thing. Like there are probably some like rules or best practices, but um, it's a lot of like reverse engineering. It's really helpful if people are trying to repair something they made because they understand exactly how it was put together. Um, but I, I, yeah, I really believe that the process reveals itself, like thinking about repairing a bag, like a really common repair I see is like the, where the straps attach um, to the back, the top of the bag. I see that fray out all the time and it, that seam is usually bound. So it's like, but the first step would be to open up, you know, take the stitching out of that binding and lift it out. You don't have to take the entire binding off the bag, but just opening it up enough to be able to get in there. And then, um, yeah, so let me think. I made a couple notes. In terms of, like, best kind of practices, like, a couple important things are, like, that the repaired area is that it's repaired with the most similar, like, the same fabric type so if it's a nylon you know bag repairing it with another nylon is like or a cotton you know denim i you know patching it with denim like when people try to mix materials or put like a polyester thing with a you know with a natural fiber thing it's like those it's important that they're the same fabric type if possible and if that's not possible then i go for the most similar feeling between the two because you want the repaired area to move seamlessly with the original item. So if you've put a patch on something mm-hmm. or you've darned it, you don't want it to be really dense in that or like stiff in a certain area, because as you're wearing the thing or using sure. it, it's important that it can like move freely. Otherwise it's going to put strain on the area. Um, yeah. What else? Oh, the prep always takes longer than the sewing itself. It's really daunting sometimes, or I think because the process is revealing itself as you go and you're like, oh my gosh, like, especially deconstructing like a Patagonia down jacket or something, you're like, the stitches are so small and you like open the binding seam under the arm and then you're like, great, I got the binding off. And you're like, and there's a serge seam. And then oh my god and then there's another layer of stitching like there's just so many rows of stitching because things are like 
so overbuilt. <laughs> oh my gosh, it gets yeah. really daunting to be like, if the pre- you're like, if the prep is taking me this long, how long is actual sewing going to take? But the good news is like, the prep always takes way longer. And you're like, once you get to the actual sewing part or like putting a patch on and stitching it back together, it goes way faster. But seam ripping and it's definitely the most time intensive thing. I was just going to say, it sounds like you're reverse, <laughs> reverse sewing. Like most people spend most of their time cutting the fabric yeah. and you're spending most of your time taking stitches out and ripping apart seams. So yeah, just a fun thought. <laughs> yeah. And it's similar to new construction in that way too, where I, that took me such a long time to learn as a sewer. I was always, um, rushing I would I would get really frustrated sewing when, when I was a lot younger because I wouldn't spend any time ironing or pinning or anything I would just like take everything to the sewing machine and just like I wouldn't do the prep work and I had a teacher that was like you have to do the prep work like sewing isn't hard <laughs> like because I'd be like oh I'm like always fighting the fabric and like was just having such a frustrating time at the sewing machine but then once I started like it's like oh you do all of the actual time is in the prep and then when you, you're like not even on the sewing machine for very long at all you're like oh okay and then yeah back to prepping um but i uh another thing is like always you know just like trying to document the process of taking things apart some some things are easier than others but um like there was a bag that I took. I feel like bags are probably something where there's a lot of different layers and stages that it's constructed in. So really just trying to take at least a before photo, um, but hopefully some photos of the process so you know the order of how things go back together. Yeah, those are some some things that come to mind. Those are some some great tips and I wouldn't have thought about you know, taking, taking those photos, but it's especially helpful, um, putting it back together. But you did mention earlier about kind of the dialectic of sewing something that's brand new and repairing something. So I'm curious to know if there are any techniques that are different when it comes to repairing, um, versus making something new or making something from scratch. Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, it's interesting. And there might not be. I'm just, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's something like my peers and I talk about sometimes because like, like, I guess something that comes to mind is like a serger is used a lot in at least garment construction in the, the process of making something from scratch. And I almost never use a serger in repairing stuff. Sometimes I'll like serge the edge of a patch or something before I stitch it on just because it's like, it makes it really easy to do a quarter inch fold and I don't have to like, I can just kind of finger press it, but there's not a lot of situations that I feel like I need to surge stuff. Um, I think, I think there's a, I use a decent amount of pattern making in, um, in my process of repair. Like if I have to replace a panel on something or, create a patch for a certain area and it's but it's it's a very different way than I would approach it um for like making a garment from scratch or something because you're trying to like yeah you know find a weird shape of like a gusset or something and you're like oh I need like to make a yeah. pattern for this very specific piece and my usual I'm usually 
a flat pattern maker where I would take the measurements and draft it, but I never really use that technique in repair. I end up actually kind of like, there's a technique that I learned for uh, garment duplication, like taking a pattern off of an existing garment without deconstructing it, um, where you kind of pin, use a pin and go through. And I like to use, I have a cork tabletop so I can kind of pin into the tabletop, but I, I try to get the pattern, like the area as flat as possible and put some push pins in it to hold the shape there. And then I use a pin and I poke holes. I like follow the seams and poke through on all around it so that I get like this really perfect transfer of the pattern. Because especially with curves and stuff, that's a hard thing to like measure and duplicate. But it's such a fun technique and really satisfying when it works out. And then you have to add the seam allowance too. You can't forget to add the seam allowance. (laughs) (laughs) I think... um some people's minds are going to explode because I know around the office, especially they, they will often the guys like the products team, Jameson, there's not a lot of us will, will buy something specifically. I'm not going to name names. Um, they'll buy something specifically just to take it apart. I know. People do <laughs> to make all the, the pattern to reconstruct <laughs> it. <laughs> and now like everyone's going to be like, I need a cork table topper, cork board, whatever that, that's super cool and yeah i mean yeah. to be fair my partner has, <laughs> i'm gonna try it out my partner has like a very um comparable skill set to me like we have almost identical skill sets though i have more training in like pattern making and construction prior but he still takes things apart he like he's yeah seam rips everything but i'm just like I, I guess when you're like kind of trained in pattern making, you're like, why? Like the prep, the seam ripping, it takes so long. I'm like, it probably <laughs> takes as long as the, the pattern making would take, you know, or like the just trying to pin it out. And there's also there's there's other techniques to get there too. There's like the rub off technique where you lay fabric over it and you use chalk or something to like kind of follow the seams. Yeah, I try not to deconstruct stuff if I don't have to. I want to ask the, the corkboard got me down another path of like uh, sewing machine and tools and stuff. Cause that made me think about maybe some, some tools or things that you have in mind that are more from like the natural fiber background side of things um, where like we pretty much exclusively, exclusively use wonder clips instead oh. of pins because laminates, obviously yeah. it's not, not as great to use pins and stuff, but that just started me thinking like one, I'd, I'd love to ask like what sewing machine you, you like to use, like what's, I guess I'll start with that. What sewing machine do you like? Like, which one do you have at home? Uh, yeah. I'll yeah. I, I'd say my bread and butter is a single needle um, industrial machine. Um, I think it's a drop feed. Um, and it has automatic thread cutting and presser foot lift, which is once you experience that, you can't go back. Um, so that, that's my, yeah. So much faster. <laughs> that's my bread and butter. I don't know the model number. It's like probably a might be a DDL five 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 zero or something. Um, <laughs> Series yeah. of letters and numbers put together. <laughs> I'll take great. a photo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and then a Bernina eight thirty. It's like a home sewing machine from the seventies that is kind of a lot of. It's like a very culty machine that is like my baby, yeah. and I've convinced so many other people to get them, and it's just like that's my ride or die that would like I could take anywhere with me I could sew any like home sewing machines are totally underrated I don't like 
modern ones as much because they're not as well made. Um, but you can just do so many operations on a sewing on a home sewing machine with the different stitch designs that like each industrial yeah. machine can only do one operation. So um, the versatility is like kind of unmatched. Those are the the main machines. I also have a walking foot machine and a flatbed walking foot and a cylinder arm walking foot that is my partner's that I use. <laughs> uh, do you have like we talk about here a lot uh, where each of us has like our favorite set of thread snips at home where like Carter has this one that's like a Japanese steel thing that I despise. He's like, no, he's like, it is absolutely the best. I feel like you're, you're the type of person that understands that type yeah. of debate. It's like, what are your go-to like certain tools? You're like, these are the best scissors or like they have to be like the, the gingers or whatever versus, you know, yeah. what, uh, you get what I'm saying. What, do you have yeah. Any I mean, I'm actually not like totally psycho about those things. Like my, assistant would make fun of me because she's like like my so many of my scissors are like so dull right now and I'm like I have like all, a bunch of scissors, <laughs> like fabric scissors around but like yeah only like one that's like really in I, I do like the gingers though and I have like Kai scissors are I'd say Kai and gingers are the two that I have the most but like mm-hmm. I just I don't know I've always like gotten them from jobs I don't know they're a weird thing because you're like you don't want to buy more of them I already have yeah. a bunch then like yeah it's like oddly expensive to get them sharpened it's just like a thing that always falls through the cracks but with um snips i'm like the best ones are whichever ones are in an arm's reach (laughs) i have so many (laughs) pairs but the pair i buy the most are the like it is it does seem like more of a japanese style they're like i (laughs) think i like this i don't have next yeah you have to put some pressure on them when you're it's intuitive to me now, but some people yeah. don't like them because there's a little bit of space between them. But I think actually, yeah, there's like reverse pressure thing, right? Where you have to like kind of like pinch the body and then like they cross yeah, over something, or something like. There's just a little they, bit of space between kind of, them, but it's like yeah. literally probably the cheapest, most ubiquitous thread snip that you would buy from like any. <laughs> um, they probably don't have them actually at like home sewing, like jo- Joanne's kind of stores, but like Wawak and yeah. every like store down in the garment district in LA. That's like. You buy like a whole sheet of yeah. them. I like those. They're sharp. So I do need to ask for your advice on this one. Last week I went on a total rampage because we had dull scissors everywhere. And I was just like, I'm done with this. I'm not chewing up more fabrics. And I just like threw away three pairs and then refreshed them. Just got new ones from the stock. Uh, is is there a good way to sharpen scissors? Like, can you get like a sharpener? Like like you would like sharpen your, your kitchen knives? Like, or have you, do you have experience with trying to fix them because i felt bad just tossing scissors away but after like chewing through one fabric i'm like i'm not dealing with this i'm already irate sure. i gotta switch these out i mean that's a tough thing because um scissors are it's like the price of a new pair is very similar to how much it costs to get them sharpened like mm-hmm. it, it's usually around ten dollars gotcha. per pair to get them sharpened and i have yeah. i've used some of those things where you just like slide it in and slide it out with like a home knife sharpener yeah. and they're they're not great. I mean, there, there might be some that are better, but to gotcha. me, that seemed like the easiest thing to just kind of keep it, keep an edge. Um, yeah. But I, I have had like, when I've kind of managed sewing studios, I had like a mobile knife sharpener just come and he would like deconstruct all mm-hmm. the scissors and, you know, do them in bulk. So I, it's like, I've been meaning to just like go to the knife sharpener and bring my scissors there, but yeah. It always falls through the cracks, but it, it's like, there's a lot of things like that in repair too, where it's like, 
what if like the repair or the maintenance is as expensive, like so close to the price of a new thing that you have to have like a good reason for why, yeah. why you're investing in it. And, you know, scissor sharpening is something that you maintain. Like it just depends on how fast you go through scissors. You're like, wow, I'm throwing away a lot of scissors every year. Like that doesn't feel good. Or, <laughs> or if you have sentimental value to them, you're like, these were my grandma's scissors. And so of course I'm going to keep sharpening them. Right. You know? Yeah, sharp. Yeah, that makes me feel better that there's not like some really easy way that everyone's been sharpening scissors and I just threw away three pairs of scissors. I understand the feeling. I feel like my assistant was about to throw away my scissors, just because it would be easier for me to just like as I'm buying other stuff on Wawax, just like add to cart more scissors. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh, okay, so back to the, I don't know why I'm saying back to the outline as if that's going to stop me next time I'm distracted, but uh, we have some common questions that are asked uh, of us, so we figured we would turn it to you to see if you had any recommendations or tips on some of these things. Um, so repairing a zipper is like the number, or one of the top questions for repairing type things. What sort of advice would you give people that are trying to repair a zipper? And let's pretend like it's a center zipper on like a, a rain jacket or something, not some like crazy pin yeah. zipper or something. Yeah, um, the most important thing there is to examine the zipper and to see if any of the teeth are damaged. If the teeth are all intact and not damaged, it's likely just the little zipper slider that needs to be replaced. Like a common thing is if you zip it up and it starts to separate, um, then that's a good indicator that you just need to replace the slider. And so on the back side of the slider, there's a few, um, there's like a number and some letters. It's like YKK 5C something. And so um, then you can go on Google and find a replacement slider that matches that same style. So it's important to be like, okay, is it a coil zipper or a plastic Vizlon zipper or a metal zipper or something? And um, just to find the exact right um, one for that. But I'd say almost more than 50% of the time, it's just the slider that needs to be replaced, which is like a two to three minute job versus actually replacing, mm-hmm. like unstitching and putting in a new zipper, which is like a most places $75 to $100 job for a main jacket zipper, which is really cost prohibitive. And so I always like recommend that people, I'm yeah. like, don't fight the zipper because you don't want to damage the teeth. Like, you know, if there's any, like, really don't force it. You just got to, like, baby your zippers. And also make sure that you keep your items clean, because a lot of people don't know that they can wash technical garments, like, you know, down jackets and rain jackets and stuff like that. So that's, like, the number one thing I've learned with Patagonia. It's, like, we do so much evangelism about washing your gear. People don't know that you can just throw it, like, a rain shell, throw it in the wash. People think it's, like, the wash is going to damage the DWR or something, but it's like keeping your gear clean is the number, like for your zipper, that's the number one thing you can do to maintain it. So it doesn't get dirty and stuck. Um, And also like your skin oils, like on the back of your neck, that's what starts to break down like the lamination on a, on a rain shell. Cause that, that's something that's like one of the few things that's truly not repairable. Like unless you want to put a bunch of gear tape over it or something like when it starts peeling it's like there's you can't you can't redo that another gear failure that we see often is down jackets and i personally believe that it's from like you know you're wearing it when it's cold you're probably by a fire Mm -hmm. to warm up so a lot of the times those embers um you get those little holes i was 
actually last season out with a backpacking trip with my friend and she was lighting her stove. If the microphone is my stove, she had her down jacket on and just singed the right, the, what do you call this? The wrist section of her down jacket. Um, Yeah. And I was like, she was like, I'm going to have to get a new one. I just bought it. And I was like, you can, we're going to find someone to repair it for you. And obviously I've known about you. So I was really passionate about like making her feel better in the moment. But, um, but you're like, I actually for... don't know how to repair this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you, you don't have any tips for repairing? Do you have any tips for repairing I down do. jackets? Do. Or... Um, the most amazing uh, product I am not endorsed or like <laughs> affiliated with them but I preach all the time about um gear aid is an amazing company and their product tenacious tape is we go through it like water with the Patagonia tours but it is mm. like that's like what it's designed for really is like holes and puffy jackets because it's a no it's a no sew situation where you just you know cut it to size are you guys familiar with that product yeah cool yeah yeah, preach into the choir um, but that's my that's the cheapest and easiest fix for a down jacket um, but it's also really easy to um, do like a baffle patch um, uh, you know from seam to seam in the whole area a lot of times it's it's especially easy if the jacket doesn't have a loose lining on the inside a lot of down jackets are like just stitched through so um, so it's really easy to just top stitch on a new patch over the baffle um, but it doesn't take long to like open up the lining and you know pinch it shut when you're done either. So baffle like sewn baffle patches shouldn't be too expensive or take too long either. Messing with down is already terrifying. So the thought of repairing <laughs> something that is down, but I'm gonna have to learn one of these days because I also have dogs and I've also had to repair a down quilt because you know dogs like to like yeah. burrow they like make their bed and he's unfortunately you know you can't get mad at your dog when he's just trying to make his bed out of your $300 quilt but yeah <laughs> lots of reasons to be able to learn how to do that I feel like it's just the material so thin to begin with because people are trying to make the jacket super light yeah it's a high use area the arms all those things so I feel like I definitely need to add it to like my making bucket list of things to personally accomplish <laughs> yeah down is it, it can be intimidating though especially older jackets most brands are pretty good about it now but like if you open an underarm seam on a down jacket or something sometimes they're open baffles so it hasn't been stitched shut and like down will come out so that's one of the first things mm. i'll do if i do start opening a seam like i actually have an older patagonia jacket of mine but I'm repairing the underarm seam and I'm like, oh my gosh, like it was before they started searching the baffle. So the first thing I have to do as I'm like taking it apart is like, I'm like putting, you know, pins in it and making sure to like sew it shut before, so I can at least work with it. Um, yeah. It's like, if, if it is an open baffle, you can always just stitch it shut if you have to like put in a new zipper or something, but it's like a good thing to be aware of that. Like as you're deconstructing, you're like kind of peeking, is it open? <laughs> <laughs> um were there a few things that you saw most when you were working for the one more program like the most common gear failures or just the situations that you ended up fixing more than anything else um zipper sliders are probably the number one thing that we've done the most and it's like yeah. such a satisfying repair i still love it um honestly <laughs> denim like even though 
it's a technical brand and it's not majority of what they make. People are bringing us any brand of clothing and denim is just like the most ubiquitous sure. thing in our culture. So I do a lot of denim darning um, and a lot of tenacious yeah. tape patching and stuff on there. Cause we're also just like, there's always like fancier ways you could do something, but we're just trying to help as many people as possible too. So yeah, yeah denim darning though is like one of my, uh, one of my favorite techniques and like favorite things to teach as well. Cause it's like everybody wears jeans and everybody blows holes in them. Yeah. Yeah. When you, as soon as you said that, I was like, yeah, I could have probably saved like $500 worth of jeans over the last yeah. 15 years. If I knew how to fix any of them instead of be like, ah, there goes another crotch. Guess I got to yeah. get back there. Can I give you a quick plug <laughs> for my favorite, my denim yeah, Please. <laughs> the number one thing that people do, you know, that the tailor that I went to when I was in high school um, did as well is like people will back the hole with denim and then they'll start doing the stitching. Mm -hmm. And that's the number one, uh, number one issue that I see is because it's mm -hmm. too, denim's too thick. You're, the whole point of darning is you're using the thread on the machine to reweave the fabric of the jeans. So any stabilizer okay. or fabric you're putting behind it is really just helping you like keep the fabric stable as you're running it through the machine. Mm -hmm. So using interfacing, like a it's usually a garment weight thing. You can get it yeah. at Joann's or they sell it on Wawak. Um, I use Pelon Shape Flex. It's nice. It's lightweight and it's uh, woven, cotton woven. Yep. Um, yeah, but so just doing some iron-on interfacing behind it and then matching the thread mm. color as best as possible. Ideally a shade of a grayish blue on both sides. Um, and then running, following the grain of the fabric, not the... Uh, you know, denim's a twill, so the the grooves go on the bias. And okay. I used to think that yeah. stitching on in the grooves of the twill would make it more invisible, but actually then you're stitching on the bias, which y'all know has some stretch on it and is not yeah. ideal. So actually just stitching north and south with the grain of the fabric, um, you can do some very beautiful denim rebuilding. Interesting. That's really good to know. I feel like I have a pair or two saved like in the corner that I'm like, oh, I'm going to learn to fix these one day. And now I actually have some sort of trajectory for the first yeah. time on how to work on those. Uh, that's super yeah. helpful. Thank you. Um, are there any ways that you would recommend people uh, or whether they're making stuff, uh, I guess really the maker side, to avoid gear failures? Like as, as someone who's done like the construction and the repair side, what are things that you see from companies um, to help people either repair it after on or just to av avoid the failure to begin with? Mm, that's a good question. Um, honestly, washing is probably still number one, even for something like denim, because yeah. a lot of people, you know, think like not washing your jeans is the way to go. But honestly, just skin yeah. oils and dirt are the things that break down fabric the most. So just keeping your gear, mm. you don't have to wash it every time you use it, but you know, some routine uh, washing for any any garment or bag um, is important. Um, what else? Uh, you know, oiling, like with leather, like making sure that you like oil it and maintain it. Like it needs to be conditioned. Um, also like waxed fabrics are pretty amazing. Or sometimes I will add wax to certain high use areas because wax really protects the fibers from abrasion. So, um, you know, but it does make it more challenging to wash it though, if it's waxed. 
Um, but that sort of that that was a cool thing to see at Filson with the old bags is that especially when people had been really meticulous about rewaxing them was like they're just these gorgeous old broken in bags would have no holes in them because they had been like the wax was like it's like getting polished as it like runs up against your hip or whatever it's like just buffing it and it like forms the shield on the outside that's like impenetrable to the actual fabric um yeah and sometimes like even like preventative maintenance things like i've it's something I'm interested in practicing or like putting like if people know that they always blow holes in the crotch of their jeans, like putting a patch, like stitching, maybe a denim patch, like to that shape hmm. um, yeah. ahead of time uh, is like, that's just a smart thing to do when you get the jeans. So at least you're going to wear through the patch instead yeah. of wearing through the fabric and then having to repair it. I think there's a lot of preventative things like that you can do. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Sort of being uh, preventative and like ahead of the curve, I guess. That's a that seems to be like a cons- uh, consistent message there. Like like take care of it, wash it, but like take care of things ahead of time, so you don't just you're not having to repair it as early in the process, I guess. Yeah. And one thing that you mentioned earlier was like not yanking on things in the zipper, and I know just from personal experience and like seeing people in the backcountry and like. I'm sure there's a lot of like down jacket zipper repairs too. But when you think about a tent or a hammock um, bug net, like you might have a 140 inch zipper or something even longer than that. And, you know, people are like, maybe you're stuck in your tent and you really need to go to the bathroom and you're just, you know, I feel like we've all been there where we're just like, (laughs) I mean, I've definitely broken the zipper of my jeans in the bathroom of a restaurant because I was like, I can't go, I can't leave the restroom. I was actually on a first date and had not met and was in the bathroom, like checking myself, you know, and then busted it. And I was like, great, this is, I mean, anyways, random sidebar, but yeah, I feel like <laughs> on to avoiding gear failures is yeah, not not fighting with your zipper, like you said, and babying it. Do you have any? Are there any like secret tips if that zipper is stuck and you are maybe in the backcountry and your tent probably has like you know people are putting their tent on the dirt and there's like like washing your gear and like that zipper is probably very dirty but is there anything like do you just kind of finesse it wiggle it like is there any tip or trick yeah with with zippers (laughs) having a little lubricant or something definitely helps so i mean even if you had like some cooking oil or something like that i think just trying to Hmm. yeah if you had a stuck dirty tent zipper maybe a aquaphor maybe yeah i mean whatever you got (laughs) (laughs) a little something to to kind of lube it up would definitely um definitely help um but yeah i mean if you have to like something does happen and like something like a tent zipper if there is some damage in uh you know to some of the teeth something that you could do that you know we do with worn wear sometimes is like we'll kind of change the zipper so that it actually stops where the damage was so you would put some zipper stops in there and kind of like and then retract the zippers so they align to the point where they got stuck instead of them doing the full um, the full U and like you, yeah you don't want to replace that whole zipper you're like just change it so that they kiss in that place and then mm-hmm. just opens a little bit differently I'm mind blown <laughs> there's a lot of little hacks like that we do because we're like 
we're scrappy and lazy too, you know? We're like, we don't want to replace that zipper. Like, we have so many scrappy hacks for that kind of stuff. <laughs> Besides um, your tip for the zippers and gear aid, do you have any other recommendations for field repairs or repairing something in the backcountry or when you don't have easy access to someone like you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, T-tip, like, please don't use duct tape. <laughs> the amount of duct tape that I remove, <laughs> like, please, 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 please use tenacious tape or scotch tape or anything else but duct tape for your puffy jackets. Um, gosh, what else for field repairs? I mean, honestly, like, a safety pin goes a long way. I think safety, like, just having some safety pins in your, um, you know, in your stash definitely doesn't hurt. Um, yeah. Also, I, yeah, iron-on interfacing is the other, or uh, iron-on patches are the other thing, but I'm like, please don't use iron-on patches. <laughs> Often <laughs> when I see those used, it's like, it's like a really dense denim patch on like a lightweight hiking pant or something. And I'm like, no, <laughs> it's like so much, there's like a stretch woven and a dense cotton twill and like, they're just fighting each other and creating more strain. Yeah, so I guess a simple little sewing kit and maybe a little scrap of fabric, like, you know, that doesn't take up much space. There's, um, I don't know who started this, but in the hiking world, and a lot of people carry it, um, floss, because most people already have it in a needle. So I have to ask you, have you ever personally, uh, for yourself, sewn with floss? Oh my gosh. I was never a real punk if I didn't sew with dental floss. <laughs> Just a DIY kit, not a full-on punk. Um, I do feel like I have maybe just one, like probably out of necessity. Or I don't really remember the circumstances. I think I have once, but it... Curiosity. Yeah. It doesn't like... You're like, what is waxed thread like? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I have other types of like leather like wax thread or leather and stuff that I use, but, um, but Hey, you know, whatever works, whatever you got on hand is what's going to be right in the moment. I think these are my last two questions, but one, I, w is there one gear repair that sticks out or, uh, maybe just one repair in general sticks out as like the most notable one that either you struggle with the most or was the most hilarious temporary fix that they use? Just, is there any one repair that sticks out as just the most, yeah. Uh, the most mm. intriguing. There was a there was a Patagonia fleece like snap tee that I repaired on this last tour that we were on that was like I was pretty proud of because um, it had a cool story because it was her grandfather's had been passed down to her dad and then passed down to her and it was this like bright barney purple color and she brought it to us and it was like shredded like it looked like it had gone through a shredder <laughs> we were like what happened to this and her her roommate's dog had gotten a hold of it and literally shredded it. Like it was hanging off in pieces where we we're like, oh my gosh, like, and you know, a lot of like, I say not a lot scares me, but it's like, it really like comes in waves. Like I do get intimidated by things sometimes. I'm like, yeah, I don't know about this one. <laughs> like, am I just going to replace this whole panel? But then I just like, usually, you know, there's four of us that were on the tour and had similar skills. Um, and so we, you know, I, I, a little bit later, I realized I like 
it's like the clouds parted and I like saw how to do it. And I looked at it some more and I realized actually most of the fabric was there. It was just had all these like rips and cuts and angles in it. But once I started like just kind of playing with it, I saw that I could finesse all of it. Like, but it just needed, it was like puzzle pieces that needed to be put back together. So I just started, um, I started, I use this um, like a stick on stabilizer that's kind of like interfacing, but it's great for like quick um, repairs or if you don't have access to an iron and stuff. I also use that for darning sometimes if I don't, again, have an iron. Um, so yeah, kind of using it as like a sticker on the back to kind of like piece, hold all these like pieces of fabric together. And then I was like using, I think I was zigzagging these pieces back together and it ended up like all going back together. Like I, there were only like one or two actual holes that I needed to put a patch over where I was like, this fabric is actually gone. But I like wow. really impressed myself yeah. with it. And then it was fun because like then adding the patches, like, you know, we just have a random assortment of like color, like small swatches of fleece to patch with. So I got to like, I love the process of repairing where I get to like put new color palettes together because I have this like bright purple, which is not usually, I like more muted earthy colors but i'm like oh there's this cool teal and then there's this cool like cobalt blue and like just kind of putting some colors together that i felt like balanced it and looked really good with it It was super fun and she just like couldn't believe that we like didn't have to just completely re like replace the bottom half of it but it was like oh my god it's like still a purple fleece (laughs) and like it all got back together yeah so that one was super um super fun and memorable Oh, that's amazing. That's such a cool experience um, all around from the making and, and like the problem solving, but also the story behind it. That's, it's like quintessential Patagonia worn wear, you know, that's exactly like why it exists. It feels like. Um, so my final question is what sort of um, resources would you recommend to our listeners, uh, websites or shops or courses or Instagram profiles you recommend we follow. Uh, obviously, we will link for everywhere uh, in the bio. And please, please, everyone check out Claire and what she does. Uh, but what, what else would you? Uh, what else would you tell us? Yeah, check let's see. In my um, linked in my bio, I have a, a free um, YouTube playlist of different uh, like how to videos for different repair techniques that I've kind of culled because a lot of people ask me how to do certain stuff, and I, I love teaching, but I don't always have the time. So that's a great like starting place for repair tutorials. Um, gosh, I follow a lot of inspiring people. My like denim darning guru, I just got to meet him in Japan earlier this year, but I've been following him for five years and he's amazing. Um, his account is called Jeans Repair Goemon, G-O-E-M-O-N. Um, and his partner's account is linked on there too. She does everything that's not denim. Um, they're probably two of my most like inspiring people that I follow. Um, let's see, Wawak, I feel like a lot of people probably know, but that's a great resource for buying thread and, you know, some basic rep- um, supplies from, I have a great store near me um, in Los Angeles that I've just started teaching classes at called Remainders, and that's a great place to buy secondhand fabric. It's like a thrift store for craft supplies. And so I always like building, you know, that's great for getting little swatches and having exact fabric matches. Those are some of the ones that come to mind. I might have more though, if I really, any more specific questions? Sounds good. Well, uh, 
Greg, this has been really, really fun. Thank you for uh, all the knowledge and experience that you brought to today's episode, um, but also the stories. I feel so inspired to make something or fix something now. Um, yeah, thank you for oh, sharing this time with us. Thanks for inviting me. This was so fun to get to talk about. Yeah, yeah. We, we should have you back because I feel like your stories are limitless. We, we need to find like new questions and a new way to ask them, and we'll find out like totally. fun stuff. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, until next time, thank, thank you. you, Claire. We'll talk soon. Thank you.